Josh, great to see you here at SALT. I've been a long admirer of your work at Lux and happy to have you here with us today. Great to be here, AJ. Yeah. So to kick things off, Josh, you recently raised a new fund. Congratulations. Earlier this year, you announced a billion and a half dollars of fresh capital for Lux. And one of the many unique aspects of your firm is you have this thesis-driven approach. And I'd love to understand you know, what, what verticals will you be focusing on with this new capital? Yeah, so we love to find directional arrows of progress. And the directional arrows of progress are basically, it doesn't point to who the entrepreneur is or what specific company it is, but it tells you with a reasonably high level of confidence where things are headed. When you think about lighting, you know, lighting, we went from uh, flames to incandescent bulbs to LEDs. And then uh, computing, we went from mechanical disks that were moving to solid state storage and, and compute. In automobiles, we went from uh, horse-drawn carriages to cars to electric vehicles to auto uh, autonomous electric vehicles. We're not going back to sconces in offices with fires. We're not going back to horses on streets, and we're not going back to spinning disks. So what are those directional arrows of progress? One definitive one is the control interfaces of how we compute. We went from, when I was a kid, my mother would say, turn the TV, and I would have to get up and literally change from channel two to channel four, and then you get a remote control. Today, you have neural brain-machine interfaces that are wearable devices that will let you make a simple gesture to control the world around you without actually hitting control devices of button pads or remote controls. And that will be the same thing with our thermostats and basically any sort of smart thing inside of a, a home. So I think that's a directional arrow of progress where you're going to see a lot of entrepreneurs at the intersection of neurotech and uh, design and consumer devices. Another one is resolution, and this is resolution of imaging in life sciences. The tools and techniques and instruments that let us see ever finer resolution of things to be able to make discoveries, whether it's for new materials or for drugs that save lives. I think that's a critical area. And then a third area where there's a clear directional arrow of progress is space. And in space, it's everything from you know, manufacturing to uh, satellites and autonomous systems that you know, are basically doing the dull, dirty, dangerous things that, that astronauts ought not be doing. Sure. Let's let's go ahead and, and double click a bit on that third piece, which is space, right? You've been very active in this particular vector. Uh, there's actually a company here that is one of your portfolio companies called Varda, which you recently, recently made an investment into. Amazing entrepreneurs. Amazing entrepreneurs. Uh, I love, you know, how are you thinking about that, that space, pun intended? I, I've heard you use analogies of, hey, it's almost like uh, the railroad days, except we're building up. There's a lot of launch companies. Uh, many of them are actually here, including Astra. What other elements beyond just launch are you excited about? Well, I, I think cliches like stereotypes have merit in, in elements of truth. And so that cliche, uh, you know, that history doesn't repeat, but rhymes uh, is true. And here, if you look to the history of 19th century build out of the railroads, you know, first you had infrastructure and steel rails that got laid. Then you had competition of the locomotives and the kinds of engines that were powering these and the fuel systems from coal and steam. And then you had infrastructure that got set up around these. So it makes sense, obviously, that you had commerce, you had way stations, you had logistics and storage, you had home development, uh, and then you had communication, which quite literally went along the rails. So now take those rails and flip them vertically 150 years later. And that's what we're doing. Instead of having actual steel rails, we've got the rockets of SpaceX and um, uh, Rocket Lab and others that are, are, are launching us. The beautiful thing about that is as there's more competition there, the cost per kilogram to get things up into space is decreasing. And therefore, the assets that we can launch is, uh, is, is much greater. So those are assets today that are satellites, small satellites. Instead of a billion-dollar ball aerospace satellite that might depreciate over five years with CapEx, today you can launch dozens, if not hundreds, of small sub-$100,000 satellites. Well, what do those satellites do? 
they're taking images of the earth thrice daily in a company like ours called Planet that's now public. You've got people that are then processing the imagery over time using AI and machine learning to look at longitudinal analysis, whether that caravan in China is really going to productive uh, facilities or whether it's going to ghost town residential, whether the shipbuilding is on track or it's delayed. And they've been able to document and, and discover all kinds of interesting things from human rights abuses to natural resource uh, and, uh, and, and natural disaster uh, uh, issues with refugees and so forth. Uh, then you've got people that are like Varda that are saying, wait a second, we can actually manufacture things in space. Now that sounds absolutely crazy. And that's what we're in the business of, of investing in, in things that people think are generally crazy. And I love to find the intersection of something that is inevitable, that directional arrow of progress, sure. when everybody else in the market believes that it's impossible, because sure. then ultimately you're paying a lower price than what the market consensus believes. The guys at Varda basically said, you know, there are certain materials, exotic materials and products that are going to make sense to develop in low or zero earth gravity. Sure. And then the key thing is to bring it back down in capsules uh, to Earth. So uh, if you sort of uh, were to bifurcate the, the two billionaires that are taking us to space right now of Musk, who has sort of more of an escapist vision, let's go to Mars and there'll be amazing things that come off of that, and Bezos, who is sort of like, you know, let's um, uh, manufacture things off, off planet and bring it back so that the Earth can be cleaner. We're more in that latter camp. Got it. Makes, makes a ton of sense. And sort of parlaying from, from space, perhaps into defense, because you know, those two are very, very related or, or co-entangled uh, together. You know, Lux has worked very closely and cooperatively with the Department of Defense. Uh, you yourself have been a, an advocate for Silicon Valley sort of mer merging or collaborating with, with the military industrial complex. I'd love to understand how you're thinking about that, how Lux is, is positioning itself uh, to invest in, in defense. Well, it, it starts with an appreciation that the the roots of Silicon Valley and venture capital investing were not, you know, just uh, Hewlett and Packard in a garage with a bunch of, you know, groves in Silicon Valley. It, it really was electronic warfare. You know, when Lockheed Martin came to Sunnyvale, there were zero people. Pretty soon we had, you know, tens of thousands of people and, you know, they were developing pretty cutting edge technology that, that helped us in the Cold War. Um, so I, I think there's a return to that ethos and zeitgeist after probably 20 years of people that have been saying, you know, beware, going back to Eisenhower, of the military industrial complex. And you've had an aversion from some of the brilliant entrepreneurs and engineers that have gone to the Valley to say, we want to work with government. Now, part of that is for political reasons, from geopolitical reasons. Part of it is uh, immigrants that have come that haven't felt that same appreciation that you had in the 1980s when people were escaping as emigres from Russia, you know, really looking to come to the U.S. I think that's starting to change. You have people that are patriotic, that believe in what the U.S. stands for, that uh, most importantly want to develop cutting edge technology, both hardware and software for the men and women who are on the front lines. About Three years ago, uh, then head of U.S. Special Operations, Tony Thomas, who has subsequently become a partner at Lux, four-star general, uh, ran all of U.S. SOCOM, sent me out to the Far East with some of the people at the edge of the, the spear and, uh, and said, I want you to do what you do on a daily basis, which is identify things that suck. What sucks is usually the great question that an entrepreneur is asking to identify a market opportunity. He said, I want you to go and sit with these men and women and understand what sucks. And this is everything from blue dot tracking. You know, if you're tracking your family members on an Apple iPhone, that's something that some of these guys in triple canopy uh, conditions in the Philippines chasing terrorists are not able to do for a variety of technical reasons. The ability to have satellite communication with no moving parts that can send very high bandwidth also under triple canopy. So, so we looked at this and said there's amazing technological things that are happening outside of DOD and Pentagon that are happening in the commercial world. Yeah. And it's time for those things to come back so that we can be advantaged, particularly when we have peer adversaries in China and Russia that are, are, are completely intertwined in a, a military civil fusion. Yeah, that's a, another per perfect segue. So in China, I mean, obviously over the last few decades, they have risen as a preeminent economic as well as technological superpower. 
And today, based on my knowledge, they're graduating five times more software engineers than we are in the US. They're pouring hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars into areas like AI, like biotech, quantum, among other things. You know, how do you, how does the US sort of navigate and uh, not fall into this Thucydides trap, if you will, while simultaneously keeping its competitive edge uh, in technology? Well, the, the first thing is a qualitative and cultural one. You know, as a culture, you get what you celebrate. So you have a culture that is celebrating scientists and engineers. I'll also go back to the, again, Cold War in Russia. You had brilliant you know, chess players and engineers and doctors and scientists. Um, so I think as a culture, we should be celebrating the people who are quite literally inventing the future. And those are our scientists and engineers. We should be attracting them from other parts of the world. They should be developing their engineers, uh, their, their degrees here, getting their doctorates and staying here and starting companies. That would be a beautiful thing yeah. that would give the U.S. a competitive advantage. Uh, I think that China is a very formidable foe in every one of the things that you named. Uh, while quantum is an area that I'm a little bit more skeptical about, I think that there's going to be a lot of frauds and, 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 a, and a bit of a faddish element, certainly in AI and biotech in particular, and the ability for them to use mass surveillance to be able to collect troves of data that you know we have civil liberties that, that in, in many cases uh, prevent. But uh, I, I really believe it starts with a cultural thing. And then I think it happens from capitalists that are willing to fund these cutting edge technologies and then work with the government. Sure. And you're pivoting away from sort of your... Um, this macroeconomic piece or the investment piece or the space piece, back to the actual the founders that you invest in. You know, one of uh, the quotes that I, I've heard from you, which I've, I've used as well, is chips on your shoulder, put chips in your pockets. And I'd love for you to uh, expound on that as it relates to how you think about the heuristic you use to identify founders, founders that have that resilience and grit to actually get it done, make these visions happen. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the uh, almost uh, heretical things to say, but a very popular thing in Silicon Valley and, and throughout the country at the moment is mindfulness and meditation and being at ease and finding. And I actually think for the individual, that is a beautiful thing. For society, it is a horrible thing. You want disaffected, really unhappy, miserable, motivated people, sure. because that is where all great progress and changes has occurred. And you look at what, you know the great people that we've celebrated, whether Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison, you know, Oprah Winfrey, you listen to the backstories of what these people endured, whether they were um, in Bezos as well, whether they were uh, adopted, whether they were abandoned, whether they were abused. You might be the only African-American or black person in a mostly white neighborhood. You might be the overweight person in a very skinny area. You might be the person that's the nerd in a Friday Night Lights, you know, Texas uh, football town. Whatever it is that makes you that outlier, you know, it's a thin line, you know, where you could end up sort of in a, in a um a malicious, you know, bad path, or you can be incredibly motivated to have that chip on your shoulder. There is nothing more powerful than the words, I'll show them. Mm -hmm. I love that. And perhaps can you tie that back to some of your, your own story, your own origin story? I think that people would love to hear more about that. Uh, for me, my mom, uh, I grew up in Coney Island, Brooklyn. Uh, she's a, a, a special ed teacher, public school teacher. My parents split when I was very young. For me, my father's absence was more the presence of what I wanted to be as a husband and a father. Uh, but all I ever wanted was a strong nuclear family. But uh, I, I saw people that grew up with you know, resources and advantages, and, and I resented that. Right, And I was still born a white kid in New York to a mom that was very loving. And so in many ways, I'm like absolutely privileged. But I think when I saw wealth that was inherited from people and I felt like I was more intelligent than them, I've always been psychotically competitive about yeah. that, wanting to sort of, you know, to be the man, you must beat the man uh, mentality. And I just love people that are absolutely psychotically driven and that it comes from some, no matter how much money they make or achievement that they, they achieve, 
there will always be this sort of hole in them. And I believe that that is the great source of, of human progress. So yeah. in founders, certainly in myself, uh, I, I just, I love finding that in people that yeah. chip on their shoulder. I love that. And you know, it's not enough at Lux for you guys to invest. You also very regularly incubate businesses across a wide smattering of, of different fields, including nuclear waste, biotechnology, immunotherapies, among other things. I'd love for you to talk a bit about that from a historical context at Lux, but also going forward, where are you looking to actually start businesses from scratch? So it often starts with what is the consensus in a market? And then what's the variant perception? What's the thing that everybody else is talking about? And then what's the thing that nobody is talking about? And why are they not talking about it? You know, do, do they have a smarter insight than us? Or have they missed something or overlooked something? Or are they uh, uh, experiencing and enjoying too much success over here so they're not motivated to look here? If you take nuclear, which was an interesting example, the entire venture world was going crazy about clean tech, green tech, alternative energy, you know, going back 10, 11 years, nobody was looking at nuclear. And in part, it wasn't in Al Gore's movie, Inconvenient Truth. So it just wasn't being celebrated in the sort of megachurch about alternative energy. And we looked and said, nuclear is really interesting. And we looked at every part of the fuel cycle from the uranium miners, who were mostly hucksters and fraudsters in New Mexico and Nevada, so we said no to that, the modular reactors, which were really the domain of billionaires or sovereigns that wanted to arrive. Instead of building a gigawatt power plant for a billion dollars, you could build 30, 30 megawatt arrays. That was interesting. But the biggest unsolved problem, going back to that earlier quote of what sucks, is what do you do with the waste? Sure. So we ended up saying, is there anybody that's doing high-tech waste treatment? And as we dug into this, there was this entire complex in the Department of Energy, about 25%. One in every $4 they spent was on clean, wasn't on clean and green and alternative energy. It was on nuclear waste cleanup. Sure. At places like Hanford and Savannah River that nobody had ever heard of for pre- and post-Cold War bomb making. So we ended up starting a company named after Madame Curie called Curion, locked up the best talent because there was this labor arbitrage where all the smart people in nuclear sort of moratorium and new build, you know, went into uh, quant shops and and hedge funds like Renaissance and, and Two Sigma and, and D. Shaw. And we locked up the best people, started this business, in licensed a whole bunch of technology, and then frankly got very lucky when Japan got very unlucky. And this little company called Kirion was the only game in town when the Fukushima disaster happened to clean up the radioactive cesium, strontium, technetium, uranium, plutonium. So that was pretty crazy. It started as a brain fart of an idea. We pulled together the team and the capital and did that. Another area where we've done this, and then I'll give you one that I'm super excited about, yeah. was the world was going crazy about uh, the microbiome. So, you know, what you eat and how it affects you and your gut and so forth. And there were probably 40 companies at the time focused on the microbiome. And one of our very smart partners, Adam Goldburn at Lux, who's a PhD stem cell biologist, said, you know, what about the gut-brain axis? So forgetting about your nutritional health, could you go into the brain for everything from the sense of satiety when you are full for metabolic diseases and obesity or for psychosocial disorders? When you say, I have butterflies in my stomach or I have a gut feeling, there is a physiological truth to that. And so we started a company around a bunch of Nobel laureates and Howard Hughes medical investigators out of Columbia uh, called Calliope, uh, brought in an incredible woman, um, Nancy Thornberry, who uh, ran all Merck's discovery programs and, uh, and then just you know, capitalized that. Today, the thing that I'm most excited about really started, and, and I love the intersection between science fiction and science fact, it started as a sci-fi idea. And a lot of the things that Lux funds, you can find these examples, whether it's in literature or graphic novels or in movies that show uh, the decreasing gap between that which was once imagined by some sci-fi author and an entrepreneur who's making it science fact. Sure. X-Men, I'm sure you've seen the movies or, or read the comic books, but Professor X puts on this helmet, Cerebro, and he's able in a crowd to spot mutants. And those mutants have ridiculous powers like lasers out of their eyes and conjuring fire from their fingers. But it got us thinking with seven and a half billion people on Earth, could there be a one in a billion chance of somebody with some crazy phenotype, some trait, and therefore there should be seven or eight people of these uh, types walking around? And sure enough, we would go to people at Cold Spring Harbor and found these PhDs, and they said, oh my God, this is all I've ever wanted to do my entire life. So we started a company called Variant 
about two years ago that went out and now has 14 partnerships globally. They hate when I you know, talk about this idea of mutants because it's not really that. Yeah. It's outlier people two years ago that went out and now has 14 partnerships globally. They hate when I you know, talk about this idea of mutants because it's not really that. Yeah. It's outlier people in outlier parts of the world who may possess the secrets in human genetics for the rest of the masses. Sure. There's a population in South America because of where they are. There's nine families that remain. When the temperature drops late at night, they're, they have a heat shock protein that the body produces to raise their metabolism. Sure. Now, if you could give that to the masses with a third of our country massively overbeast and they were able to take something like a pill that would raise their metabolic activity while they slept, I mean, that is a $50 billion drug oh, for sure. that could save lives. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. On, on that point, we at, at SALT sort of think of programmable biology or the intersection of software and biotech through the lens of evolution from natural selection to intelligent direction, mm -hmm. right? I think that's sort of what you're alluding to here. Uh, how do you how do you think about uh, that on a long term time horizon, 2050 and beyond? If you if you could opine on that, like, well, where are we going to go there? The intellectually honest answer of you know 20 years out, I, I really have no idea. And what I, I do is try to find the brilliant people who are quite literally inventing the future that are doing that. What you touched on though is dead on, which is the intersection between tech and biotech, and so specifically. The metaphors that we use in programmability of cells, even when people are explaining something like CRISPR, gene editing technique, they talk about almost like copy-paste, control-C, control-V, like we would in Microsoft Word. But I think it's really the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, to be able to look at cells and understand what is going on, sure. to be able to understand from genetic sequences the same way that you might use natural language processing to understand texts sure. and search, where these worlds are combining. We have a public company called Recursion that was taking computer vision and AI to be able to look at the, the uh, topology of cells to understand what happens when you introduce a drug to be able to, to improve the, uh, the effect on a whole variety of populations where you could do tens of thousands of these things in silico uh, at the same time. So I, I think the intersection between biotech and AI is gonna be absolutely explosive. Uh, and, and it's really at the interstices between these two disciplines where you classically had biotech investors in one domain, you had software and AI investors in the other, but where those two are meeting is going to unleash a lot of opportunity. Okay. In addition to biotechnology, another one of the mega trends here at SALT this year is crypto and blockchain. Uh, I know, you know Lux has been thinking and investing in this area. There's a lot of froth as a, an emergent byproduct of sort of the crazy liquidity uh, in the area, but how are you filtering through the noise and what opportunities are you seeing that you think will have real staying power? We have thought that the arms dealers in this case, you know, while we're not in Coinbase, we have an incredible company called Anchorage, which is the main custodian for a lot of the crypto assets. When Visa announced that they had bought this NFT, it was Anchorage that was the, the main component of that or supplier for the infrastructure. So I think we're in a speculative mode right now. There are frauds, there are fads, there are promoters. Generally, my view here would be listen to the things that you don't hear. In other words, the people that are making a ton of money are the ones that are not really speaking that much. The ones that are constantly pumping and promoting are the ones to be more wary of. Fair point. I think that's a great you know, universal heuristic candidate. So in the last you know few minutes here, a few rapid fire questions for you. One is, right now there is an massive abundance of capital, particularly in private markets, sloshing around at the late stage hedge funds are kind of coming down into the earlier stage as our sovereign wealth, pension. I mean, it really is crazy uh, what, what's going on. How, how does Lux in, a, in, a, in this abundance of capital differentiate? You know, what are the key differentiators relative to, to other venture firms, whether it be in Silicon Valley or hedge funds here in New York? 
So m most of the crossover funds for us are partners. They're providers of later stage capital, and, and they're all very smart, and they've been great partners. So the KOTUs, D1s, Dragoneers, uh, Tigers, et cetera. Um, early stage, I think for us, the, the the bread and butter is really, can you start de novo companies? Can you put entrepreneurs in business and be their very first day one check? Today, you know, I don't know, there's 1,800 venture firms. You know, again, history doesn't repeat it rhymes. You go back to the 2000, you know, dot-com boom and bust. Within a year and a half of that peak number, you know, I think at that time it was about 1,000. It got cut down to about 400. So the difference here is you also have the rise of solo GPs where, you know, individuals are basically raising SPVs and large multi-hundred million dollar funds. Capital is abundant. What happens when capital abundant return gets scarce? So why do returns get scarce? Because you're paying a high price for a cheery consensus, as Buffett says. So you want to invest where capital is scarce. And that means more esoteric areas, things that people might think are, you know, uh, impossible, things that people might think are going to take longer, pe things that people think are, are, are more capital intensive than they actually are, and try to have that varying perception. And then if you can form new codes, you can get disproportionate ownership early on for relatively low capital. But I think we're in a, in a world for the next few years where the cap, the pools of capital formation very much feel like 1998, 1999, 2000, where everybody is getting into the game and eventually there'll be a massive shakeout. The distress guys will clean up. We've had probably eight or nine of our companies, you know, go through SPACs. We are telling all of them, you know, husband your cash, be really smart about this because when the downturn happens, the amount of cash that's been delivered to the balance sheet of many of these companies is an arsenal, is a war chest to do consolidation in certain industry sectors. Yeah. So that's how we're sort of thinking about the next year. Yeah. And as our final question, love a hot take uh, from you. Give us sort of what in the deep tech landscape is severely overrated and perhaps what's severely underrated. We'll wrap there. Overrated for me, I would say, is quantum. I think it's an area that preys upon people's um, uh, ignorance. And anytime there's ignorance arbitrage, you get frauds and uh, you get people making all kinds of crazy claims. Part of that is FOMO. Part of that is people not wanting to admit that they don't understand it. But I'm very skeptical about vast majority of things in quantum computing. The thing that I'm most excited about that I think is underhyped by others, and, and we're building a portfolio so I can talk about it you know, pretty actively, is what I call the tech of science. Hmm. The technologies and the instruments that are enabling people both on the hardware side. We have a company called Icon, Nobel Prize winning work of a guy, Eric Betzig, that is able to look inside of a cell in real time and image what is happening when you introduce a drug. And then you've got a company like Benchling that is doing that on the software right. side to automate labs and science. The reason that's important, and I know that macro is a big part of this conference itself, the geopolitical competition that we're having with China and others. Historically on the stage, you had hard power and you had soft power. And soft power was a combination winning Olympic medals and exporting MTV and music and movies and so forth and winning Nobel Prizes. Yep. And I think that the race for scientific prestige hmm. is going to see a big tailwind, whether that's in space or down in the scientific labs and the instruments and tools and hardware and software to fuel that is going to be a really big deal. Love that. With that, Josh Wolf. Thank you, AJ.